Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading Mark's gospel together, and last week we read along as Jesus entered into Jerusalem uh, for what would be the final week of his life. And uh, we are this morning going to look at what happened on the second day of that week. So I'm going to read from Mark 11 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we're mindful this morning of people all over the world, um, in Texas and in Florida and in Mexico and in India, who are devastated and afraid because of natural disaster. And we ask that your people in those places, your church in those places would be a rest and a welcome and a home and a relief. And even though we're here on a beautiful day in comfort, we also with open hands admit that we need you to meet us and be a rest and a home and a relief for us. Father, meet us in the places that we find ourselves this morning. Show us the grace of Jesus again and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to read you something from a letter that John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail. Uh, this was before he became our first vice president and, of course, later our, our second president. Uh, this is from a letter that he wrote to his wife. This is what he said. I'm apt to believe 
that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. You might think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. So some of you uh, might know what he was talking about. Maybe you figured it out as I was reading it. He wrote that letter to his wife on the day that the Declaration of Independence was drafted. Uh, I don't have any idea if he ever intended anyone other than his wife to see that letter. But it's funny to think about it now. He pretty much wrote the script for how we celebrate on Independence Day. I mean, give or take a few of those things on that list for regional differences. We pretty much do all of them. And of course, the pinnacle of every Independence Day celebration is the illuminations, or as we call them now, the fireworks. We know that we have not really celebrated the 4th of July until someone shoots off some fireworks. So, I want you to imagine something with me, all right? I want you to imagine this upcoming July 4th, 2018, in the city of Philadelphia, where this letter was penned. And just before the fireworks are about to go off and the orchestra pit is warming up, the 1812 overture, whatever they're going to do, a big city fire truck pulls up in front of the place where the fireworks are. And a guy gets off the truck. He's just in street clothes. He hooks up a hose and he douses the fireworks with water. He completely destroys them, makes them unusable. And then just before he gets back into this truck to drive off, he looks out and says, you don't understand anything about independence. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> but what would the reaction be? What would people think? I mean, of course, people would be really bummed out. At first, they'd be probably really angry or confused, maybe all of those feelings at once, but it wouldn't be for long. It wouldn't be long before people got past whatever happened in that moment and wondered, what was that all about, really? It wouldn't be long before people wondered and started to articulate what it is that this protester was trying to say about independence or about our country or about our politics or whatever. No one would wonder if he had a thing against fireworks. We would know that they were just symbols of something else. We know that his protest went way deeper than fireworks and into our identity as a country. So, this kind of deeply symbolic action is the kind of thing that we need to hold in our heads as we enter into this story that we just read and heard together. This is Jesus at his most intensely prophetic stance. He is teaching here not only with his words, of which he says very few, very few in the temple that day. He is teaching with his body. He is teaching with his strength. He is teaching with his power. He's doing things that seem to make no sense at all 
things that are aimed towards provocation, but on a deeper inspection turn out to be really about the truest things that we can ever know about who he is and who we are. It will take us a while to get to that place where we can reflect on those things, so be patient as we walk through the story of what happened that day. It begins on this short walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's about two miles. It is for day two of Jesus' final week, and Mark tells us that Jesus is hungry. This part of the story we can understand, we have access to it, but this is the last detail in the story that will come easy. Jesus looks around and he sees a fig tree in leaf. Now that sounds promising for people who are hungry. Here's a thing that looks healthy, it looks robust, it looks fertile, it looks hopeful. Mark tells us that Jesus went to see if he could find anything on that tree. Now this is really strange. Because as Mark tells us, and that's the us as the people who don't really have an intimate knowledge of fig trees, it wasn't the season for figs. This would not have been a surprise to Jesus, who had been around fig trees his whole life. And this wouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples either. What Jesus is doing here is like one of us wanting to pick a Michigan apple in April. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. So Jesus heads over to this tree, and to absolutely no one's surprise, there's no figs on it, only leaves. This thing looks healthy and fruitful from a distance, but up close it is barren. And, and Jesus looks at this tree that's doing exactly what this tree should be doing, and he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It doesn't make sense. You know, it's strange. It's like the hole in the road that you didn't see coming, and after you hit it, you say, where in the world did that thing come from? And in a beautifully understated way, which is always pretty much Mark's way, he says, the disciples heard it. Uh, they, they can tell it's not a real good time to talk to Jesus about it, so they don't, but they heard it. Like our imaginary protester, Jesus has just doused the fireworks and said a little something and walked away. I mean, does Jesus have something against fig trees? Why does he do this? What does it mean? How do we make sense out of it? And with these questions swirling around in the disciples' minds, and of course in our minds as readers, Mark tells us that that short journey from Bethany to Jerusalem is finished now. And Jesus and the disciples enter into the temple. Now the temple, the, the one that was standing in Jesus' day, was a massive, massive structure. I don't know what you picture when you picture Jesus walking into the temple with the disciples, but I'm going to guess that the scale is probably not large enough in your imagination. The footprint of the temple in Jesus' day covered about 35 acres. It was a big space. And Jerusalem as a city was swollen with pilgrims at this time of year who were there ready to celebrate the Passover. So the temple this week is running pretty much around the clock. The priests, and there were lots of priests, hundreds of priests, they can barely keep up with the amount of sacrifices that they need to make that week, which could have been around 200,000 animals. 
And that's why the money changers and that's why the pigeon sellers were an absolute necessity in that place. The pilgrims would need to convert whatever currency they had, you know, when, when they had made the trip from where they had come from into the coinage that could be used in the temple. The money changers were necessary for that. And then once these pilgrims had the right currency to use in the temple, the ones that had come without animals, and that would have been pretty much all of them, would need to buy an animal for sacrifice. That's why the pigeon sellers are there. So those are the, those are the physical surroundings. But there's almost no way to account for all of the tension that would have been in the air in that moment. Namely, the irony of celebrating freedom. I mean, that's what Passover was. Passover was a celebration of freedom, of God's people being freed from slavery. The irony of celebrating freedom while you are being watched over by a Roman garrison, that was not lost on anyone. Jerusalem was hot during the Passover festival. It was a tense time. There were always whispers of revolution in the air. That's why Jesus had been welcomed the way he had been welcomed the day before. And among the people that expected a Messiah to come, they had for that Messiah a deeply nationalist vision. They assumed that one of the first things on Messiah's agenda would be to kick out the foreigners from the land and to overthrow Rome. So it's into this chaotic, into this tense, noisy place that Jesus enters. And without a word, he starts flipping tables. Coins clinking to the ground, pigeons flying up to the high places, dudes telling him to stop, little kids hiding behind mama's legs. And it's not just the flipping that Jesus did. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He stopped it cold. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he got everyone in that 35-acre footprint to stop, even for a few minutes, but he did it. Jesus must have been completely on fire. Terrifying. Galvanizing. Compelling. And then he speaks. First, it's a question. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That question comes straight from Isaiah 56. It was our Old Testament lesson. Jenny read it to us, a part of it. That is an amazing, amazing passage that envisions a time when excluded ones will be included. Foreigners outcasts, pariahs. They will all be welcomed by God, he says. This, this is what God tells the foreigner and the outcast. I'm going to give you a house within my walls. And I'm going to give you a name that is better than sons and daughters. I'm going to give you a monument 
an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And church, this is precisely not what is happening at the temple at this point in their history. It had become a place of fierce nationalism. And Jesus is saying with complete clarity, this is not right. I think this is an interesting thing for us to consider this week in particular as our elected representatives figure out what to do with what we have called the dreamers. You know, immigration policy and law is complicated, I'm sure. But here's what's not complicated. God has told his people again and again and again how to treat the stranger and the foreigner and the outcast. You welcome them, he says. You love them. You care for them. Jesus said, if you welcome the stranger, you are actually welcoming me. And this is, most assuredly, not what was happening in the temple that day. And then Jesus says something that often gets misunderstood. Instead of a house of prayer for all the nations, Jesus says, you have made this place into a den of robbers. Now sometimes people hear that and they think that the thing then that Jesus must be really angry about is the money changing or maybe it's the pigeon selling. Like they're the robbers, the money changers, the pigeon sellers, they're the robbers, it's their den. And then maybe Jesus wants to just reform this place, just scrub it up, right? Make it a little bit more pure. Move all of that stuff maybe outside of the temple walls as if Jesus is upset with the commercialization or something. And I'll bet in the heading in your Bible right before this story, it says the cleansing of the temple. But I want you to know that that misses Jesus' point entirely. Because when Jesus talks about the den of robbers, he is again quoting directly from one of the prophets. He is quoting from Jeremiah. You should read Jeremiah 7 later this afternoon. It is amazing. But I can summarize it for you now through Jeremiah. God says, Jeremiah, stand at the gate of the temple. And when the people come through, and in particular when the leaders come through, tell them, I've been watching them. I've got my eye on them. Tell them I've watched as they have shed innocent blood. I have watched as they have gone after other gods. I have watched as they have oppressed the orphan and the widow. I have watched as they have oppressed the foreigner. And so God says, I have a question for you. Will you do all of these things and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, and go on doing those things? God says, has this house, this is what he questions, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Is that what this place is? In other words, you, you cannot go off and do whatever you want and then come back here and act like everything's fine. This is not home base in your twisted game of tag. This is not a den for brigands and robbers and cheats 
and oppressors to come and plot their next caper. This, church, this is what Jesus is invoking. The temple was supposed to be the place where God met with his people. It was supposed to be the place where those who were far away could come near. It was supposed to be the place where God's people and people from all over the whole world could come and find restoration, where they could be forgiven, where they could be made new and sent out into the world with a brand new vocation, a brand new way to live. And it had instead become something horribly other, a place of exclusion and a center of corruption. It was supposed to be like a fruitful tree for someone who's hungry, but it had become something else, leafy, promising at a distance, up close, barren. Through his actions that day, Jesus was telling the religious and political leaders who stood behind all of the nationalism, all of the hatred, all of the exclusion, that they had made the temple corrupt and hopelessly so. It was a deeply symbolic, a wildly prophetic action. Jesus stopped everything in the temple. He just stopped it, even if it was for just a few pregnant moments. I mean, think about it. It probably took them 10 minutes to set everything back up after he left. And you can be sure they did. And you know what? That's okay. <laughs> because Jesus wasn't trying to reform the place. He wasn't trying to cleanse the place. He wasn't trying to return the place to its former glory. He was trying to say, its time has expired. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And just in case we've missed it or the disciples missed it, <laughs> Mark comes back to the story. The next morning they're on their way back to the temple and Peter looks and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Of course. It is the key that we need to fully understand that acted out parable of judgment that Jesus did in the temple. Listen, don't, don't be sad for the fig tree. <laughs> it was an eloquent preacher in its death. And this brings us to a really difficult and really interesting question. This is where we get to the part now about what all of this means about Jesus and me and you. The temple was the place where God met with his people. It, it was the place where God spoke to his people, where they heard his life-giving word. It was the place where people could come and be restored and forgiven and sent out. I mean, these things were the whole beautiful, breathtaking point of the temple. It was amazing. And so why wouldn't Jesus want to reform it? Why wouldn't he want to cleanse it and scrub it up and return it to its former glory? Well, the answer to those questions is profound, and church, it is at the very center of our faith. Something better than the temple had come. Something even more beautiful, even more majestic, 
even more lasting. There was a new place now where God would meet with his people and it would not be confined to walls that were built with human hands. Something better than the temple had come. There was a new place where God's people and the people from all over the world who were broken and ready for grace, where they would come to be forgiven. And it wouldn't be a forgiveness based on a kind of place-holding forgiveness with sacrifices that need to be made again and again, year after year. It was a forgiveness based on a complete and full and perfect sacrifice made. Something better than the temple had come. There'd be a new place. A new place where outsiders and pariahs and outcasts would find home and grace and peace. It'd be a place that would always be free of corruption and greed. In fact, it would be a place where we have the pinnacle of what it looks like to give up everything for the good of others. Something better than the temple had come. And Jesus talked about it beautifully when he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, Jesus is the better place. He is where we meet with God. He is where we are forgiven. He is where we are restored. He is the place where outsiders find home. He is the place in which and through which we become the people that we were always meant to be. He is the place from which we are sent with a new vocation of love and mission and service in this world. So, unexpectedly, perhaps, we find that Jesus is saying something about himself that day. It is a call to faith. Do we really believe that's who he is or not? Are we really going to find those things in him? Home, rest, peace, restoration, forgiveness, or not? Are we going to follow him or not? He is calling all of us to faith while he is flipping those tables. Some of us maybe for the first time, others of us he is calling back to faith. And the question is, are we listening? And if we are, and if we follow him, then that means something else for how we live. I think it's interesting that when Peter points out the fig tree to Jesus, <laughs> Jesus doesn't go, oh, well, yeah, you know, that's kind of the metaphor. You need to understand what happened in the temple yesterday. You see how it works? It's kind of, in he doesn't say anything like that. <laughs> Maybe he wanted them to figure that out on their own. I don't know. But what he does begin to do is outline the life that he is calling them into, a life of faith and prayer that is ordered around the grace of forgiveness. That's the new life that his death and resurrection and ascension ushers us into and the whole world into. It's that new place where the house of prayer is now the entire world and the remaking of everything is possible. Mountains can be lifted up and thrown into the sea. And these people are the people whose lives are ordered. The citizens of that kingdom, of that new world, 
are the people whose lives are ordered around faith and prayer and the grace of forgiveness. That's us. And that means that in this broken world, we, church, we become outposts of the better place that is Jesus. That's our job. In Jesus, we are the place where the outcast and the outsider and the pariah and the broken and the hurting and the sanctimonious moralists and the proud and the arrogant and the confused and the shrill and the sad and the crooked, <laughs> all of them <laughs> who just look like us, <laughs> all of them can see in us that home and that welcome and that grace. They can see that life lived out in beauty and offered up with open hands. This is what our calling is in this world, to be the outpost of the better place that is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe, help us to see in the flipping of the tables a call to believe again and a call to enter fully, happily, hungrily into that life that Jesus outlines, that you would help us as your people, as individuals, as a church, to be that place that shows the welcome of God, the peace that is offered to us, the forgiveness that is offered to us, the grace, the home, the restoration that is offered to us because of what Jesus has done for us in the whole world. Father, do this in the name of Christ. Amen.